Before we get into the, the main content of this week's program, uh, the Trash Future Rationality Correspondent has actually come back into the studio again for the second week running and wants to share some of his thoughts. The chattering classes of this once great nation are once again up in arms, posting all over the well-known website twitter.com about the new big thing. No, not the latest pop starlet to be seen out in public, not the peculiar shape of my head, not even the latest goings-on on ITV's Island of Love. No, I speak, of course, of the visit of Donald Trump. Now, I'm no fan of Donald Trump. I disagree with many of his views. But I also, as a Democrat and a liberal, believe we ought to give him a fair hearing, unlike mad animal farm socialist Jeremy Corbyn. But members of the loony hard left, such as many Liberal Democrat voters, have been decrying his visit to the UK, saying that we shouldn't be rolling out the red carpet for the US president simply for the trifling reason that he has abhorrent views and policies which we oppose. They are also incensed that he called the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, a loser. But have they asked themselves, what if he is a loser? Wouldn't the President of the US probably be able to tell? Wouldn't the father of Eric Trump know one when he saw one? In many ways, as per usual, the real loser here is freedom of speech. If we do not allow Donald Trump, the US president, a platform in the UK to express his views, is that not in itself the kind of fascism the left supposedly oppose? Should we not seek to give a voice to the voiceless? People claim... <laughs> people... <laughs> people claim... <laughs> it always happens at least once. People claim that Trump can't be allowed a state visit because his regime locked children in cages. But look, we've all had a few drinks and done things we regret, and this is a double standard. We still allow the Austrian president to visit. <laughs> The, pro <laughs> the protests against Trump were nothing more than snobbery. The high and mighty lefties of Islington and Tower Hamlets can't handle the real, sort-of-the-earth, working-class appeal of a man like Donald J. Trump. Because what do the working-class love? McDonald's? Check. Fake tan? Check. Sexism? Bingo. Gold lifts? Of course. Sexy daughters with weird husbands? Whom among us has not indulged? The most ridiculous suggestion of all, though, was to suggest that the Queen was not enjoying the company of Donald Trump. Her Majesty would never show distaste for an honoured guest, especially not a barely intelligible ageing sex pest with gold-encrusted accessories. This could be describing any one of her own relatives. In short, by failing to recognise a man who started out in life with only a plucky attitude and $200 million to his name, the British metropolitan elites have once again done themselves a disservice. Donald Trump is a modern man. He doesn't want to dwell on boring stuff like the past, the facts, or even finishing his own sentences. He is a man of action. It's disgraceful that the parasitic Ramonas prevented all the Trump fans from lining the streets to meet him, with only less than 100 making it through their Stalinist picket lines to greet the special boy. In many ways, it would have been more fitting to let a few more people through, and if Trump could have been greeted not by 100 people, but by a crowd of 1984. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Ah, thank you again, Brendan. I, I really, I don't know what our show would be without your stern but firm guidance, keeping us on the straight and narrow and making sure that we never accidentally oppress anyone's speech or like infringe on their ability to put on a right-wing comedy night where they make coffee-flavored coffee jokes. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Look, guys, it, the thing is, the struggle with putting on any comedy night is that you, you struggle not to talk about the fact that there are too many damn genders, you know? <laughs> it's the elephant in the room. Yeah. Uh, so welcome back to TF. Uh, I'm Riley. You remember me from all the stuff. Uh, I'm here, of course, with Milo, who gets to sit at the gold microphone today. It's me, your boy. I have too many damn genders. 
Uh, Nate on the boards. Hello, it's me. I don't have the golden mic, but it'll sound the exact same for some reason, almost as if it's just decorative coding. I don't. I want the gold mic for for future rec- for future recordings. I want people to know how cool I am. So I what you're basically like- saying is you are the Donald Trump of podcasting. Fine. If I get a gold mic, sure. <laughs> Our studio has a gold lift. More things need to be made. Look, everyone needs to really get on um, putting money in the Patreon. Because we need more gold stuff. <laughs> like we will, we will like um, bedazzle the Trash Future Studio at a certain, sure. trash, a certain yes. Patreon level. Okay, uh, can we make can we make a note here to please put in a new Patreon tier that we will begin bedazzling the studio? King Midas X Justice X Trash Future. Yes, King Mid. Yes, yes, exactly. Thank you. We will replace Riley's balls with actual rubies, thereby preventing the birth of many unfortunate children. Awesome, cool. I'm for it. Um, and also we are joined by returning champion James Medway Hello, hello uh, Back in the basement again I couldn't find your lift uh, Golden or otherwise in the way down here So No, well, maybe Patreon. later The lift goes from the studio directly down to hell Oh, <laughs> uh, look, so it's been another big week in Britain um, I, I, I know we've Much hay has been made of, of Change UK uh, Changing into not a party anymore been a real hoo-ha yeah there's they've put on they've put on um the portis head album they're trying to get people to leave the party's over folks <laughs> what what what's really str- i don't want to spend too long on, on them because they were a fundamentally unimportant group of um arrogant grandstanders but what really strikes me about change uk is not just that they had no policies um which they they listen to our episode with molly they didn't um or that they were utterly and inept at campaigning it's that they completely forgot what a political party was and just decided that they were a bunch of media brands and a group of different media brands apparently don't play well together. I don't think it was it even that. I mean, if you look at their actual branding, it was so sort of woeful. Um, yeah, the, the, what was it? Four lines, four black lines with Change UK written yeah. in bold Ariel next to it as their logo, that sort of thing. It's mm. like if this was their effort at branding, they, they sort of failed on, on that part. But the policy thing was was, was interesting. Well, it's not particularly interesting because there's nothing there, but it's striking how little there is there. These people dance around and say, oh, God, we could do all of this better if only Jeremy Corbyn and everybody else would get out of the way. We could make this whole thing work because we've got all the bright ideas. And then you go and ask them and there's absolutely nothing there. If anybody struggled through Chris Leslie's uh, magnum opus from last summer on you know what we should do if we were a sensible party really there's nothing there it's completely vapid and mm. it's really striking that for all the endless talk about how much we must have a center how much this is uh, completely necessary for britain now they don't actually have anything to fill in with it well Chris, the, uh, the first 500 words are just saying that jeremy corbyn is a nasty man and then the last thousand words are just screw flanders over and over <laughs> again <laughs> well look it's the um is that the, I think, the, and we'll we'll touch back on this later. Is that very clearly change? We is that Change UK was a nostalgia party. They were just nostalgic for the early two thousands and nineteen nineties. And I mean, Mario's "Let Me Love You" was a banger, to be fair. <laughs> and the and and their entire their entire appeal was let's go let was all of the problems that have stemmed from everything that we did sort of in the nineteen eighties and nineties. Those weren't real. All we just have to pretend they don't exist, and then we can go back to them, and that would yeah. be great. 
No, there's a denial of reality to it. The, the reality of the 90s and 2000s was basically most of the things that we see right now that are problems. And that's everything, like the the, the aftermath of a massive financial crisis in, in the form of austerity. Uh, climate change, the Kyoto Protocol is 1990, right? Mm. This is, we already knew this was a problem for this entire time and basically did nothing right? or next to nothing for that entire time. So all of the problems you get now were all there already. So you can't kind of wish these things away. That was the darkened belly of the 90s and 2000s. Well, in terms of continuing to have careers in politics, I'm sure that Chris Leslie and Coffee, Joan Ryan, and the rest are wishing that they never split from their parties because they're going to have to get fakey consulting jobs in the next couple of years. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Considering that they were a party by, of, and for no one besides Polly Toynbee and Jonathan Friedland, maybe they can become Guardian columnists. No, that's true. They can get it's this though. That's that's UBI for upper middle class people in this country is. Being a columnist. Can you imagine if Mike Gapes had to write a column like once yeah, every two I, weeks? I can imagine that, and, and it would be brilliant, and it, sh- it should happen. If it should there's absolutely any happy be on the cow website, this, it should Mike absolutely Gapes, a writer. Yes, all of Change U- all of Change UK. I don't care what they are now with the various continuity Change UKs and the others. All of them, when they are, are unceremoniously booted from their seats, because all you all Chris Leslie could basically offer was. Chris Leslie and no uh, no promise to do or support or stand for anything other than Chris Leslie. Um, make him a columnist, please. I want to make fun of his writing on a weekly basis. Chris Leslie's more like Kanye West than we initially gave him credit for, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you if you if you have the mindset of Kanye West, but no talent or discernible skill, then you become a centrist politician. Or we, Kanye West. <laughs> we sort of need this to happen because it's like the human podcast centipede for content. It's like yes. if they do this, they write their terrible columns, we can mock them, and we don't have to work as hard writing the yeah. show notes. Exactly. Yeah, that was unfair to Kanye West, but I will say that if Chris Leslie wants to get global level famous, the evidence bears out that he should get a wife with a bigger ass. <laughs> So, Chris, if you're listening, maybe consider it. Also, um, so Change UK, a fundamentally unimportant event that accrued a lot of media coverage. Uh, Trump, as we as we mentioned, as Brendan reminded us, also visited a fundamentally unimportant event that received an enormous amount of media coverage. Um, it's they, they they all they all suck. They're as bad as one another. They are they they all deserve to be unceremoniously removed from their positions of power and influence. Well, I also think too, just as a really quick note, that you, like you said, they're both very unimportant events. But also, I think that you can watch the way in which there is universal consensus against the leadership of the Labour Party on the part of people who make this into a much bigger deal than it actually is. Donald Trump is wildly unpopular in the United Kingdom, and yet somehow Jeremy Corbyn is wrong for boycotting the state dinner. Mm. Uh, Change UK was apparently the death knell of the Labour Party, except it was. <laughs> basically a bag of shit that failed to light on fire and <laughs> as a result like this entire time you, you could at any moment have done like a you know a, a pause and read what was in the news and there would be some column just going wild castigating the leadership of the labor party because apparently they were they weren't reading reading you know the evidence correctly they 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 had lost the plot and it's very obvious like mm. in uh, two weeks no one's gonna give a shit about donald trump's state visit but obviously like i there's still going to be 75, 80% of people in this country disapprove of Donald Trump. Of course. The thing is, Nate, we all know the real reason that Jeremy Corbyn boycotted that dinner was that they refused to serve his homemade jam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is he, he wanted to be there just necking glass after glass of wine. Um, so you say glass after glass of jam. <laughs> Can you imagine the richest possibly, dessert wine possibly ever more likely, if anything. But yeah. <laughs> doing shots. But here's what I find very interesting. These, these, these two events have sort of received their 
big media pops constantly. Uh, however, Philip Hammond, Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, be- being interviewed recently, uh, said that the UN report suggesting that 14 million British people lived in dire poverty and that essentially Britain was swiftly becoming a humanitarian emergency. Um, his suggestion that that figure, he just doesn't, he just doesn't believe it. He dismissed the figure as depressing and therefore probably not true. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) When people tell me I still live at home with my parents, I say depressing and probably not true. (laughs) You live with Hussein now. No, I don't. I don't live anywhere. Actually, you want the real truth, guys. I don't live with my parents. Don't worry. I'm homeless. It's fine. (laughs) So, yeah, Philip Hammond just said, nope, I it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand the idea that 14 million people here live in poverty. I just, I haven't seen the evidence of it, which is just weird, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. This is just absolutely bizarre. What bloody planet is he on, right? How can you walk around London? Like almost anywhere. He goes to, he goes into Westminster. He goes into the houses of Parliament. He sees, he must see people who are homeless. He must get a vague glimmer that something perhaps somewhere is up. How can he, how can he say that there aren't uh, at least a very large number of people who are in poverty? He can squabble about the number up or down, but simply deny that there's millions of people in dire poverty when you have a completely reputable source telling you this. And by the way, PS, you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer. You're supposed to pay some attention to like actually official figures and all the rest of it. It's quite incredible. That's added up, by the way, Today, this morning, where suddenly, as if out of nowhere, the Treasury's uh, turned around and said, oh, we can't do anything about climate change. It'll cost a trillion pounds. You know, <laughs> think of the biggest number you can. And they go, it's a trillion. Oh. With absolutely no uh, evidence whatsoever about how they got to this number, what it even means. What is this cost? You know, is it money we have to spend? Is it money we're going to save? Is it money we'll kind of lose in some way? So they just, I don't, it's, it's a kind of breakdown of what the basic bits of government are supposed to do, which is like, if they have a number and it's supposed to be a real official number. You can't point at the ones that are real and official and say, that doesn't exist. And then on the other hand, just sort of make one up and then leak it to the Financial Times because you're trying to do over the Prime Minister before she leaves. Look, James, the thing is, you're splitting hairs here. Look, the point is, like, whether or not you know, stopping climate change is going to cost a bit more than a trillion pounds, a bit less than a trillion pounds. The point is, it's very expensive and it would be much cheaper to let everyone fucking die! (laughs) (laughs) Ah, We're going to be the richest dead people who've ever lived and then all died. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. So we're all going to die because it's very expensive to fix to fix climate change. uh, And all of the things we could do, one of the biggest things we could do to fix climate change, of course, which is make some of these people in dire poverty not poor actually won't work because apparently no one in Britain is poor because everyone learned to code, I think. Well, if no one's Britain poor, we can probably afford a trillion pounds. You know what I mean? We just add it all up and do something about climate change. None of it makes any sense. None of it. None of it at all. Um, so, so thus Philip Hammond and, and spreadsheet Phil and his his new you know made up uh, numbers factory. Uh, <laughs> sorry, you, you, that was quite that was quite. I felt the pain, and it's a, a reasonable thing to to feel the pain about it's, this. It's a thing it's that so, I do. It is, it's, you know. it's beyond. It's kind of incomprehensible. On the one hand, though, there's no poverty in Britain. On the other hand, we can't spend anything on climate change because, as you say, it's simply too expensive. So you know, it, it, it feels yeah. like when I look at the way that the Conservative Party works in this country, it feels like when a student turns in a paper and they've changed like a JPEG to a Word document and they sent it in because then they'll be able to claim that, hey, the uh, actually uh, the file got corrupted somehow. My bad. I still made the time, the, the deadline, but, uh, you know, and then they have a couple, they have the entire weekend to work on it, but they haven't done that next step. 
They've just mm-hmm. got the fucked up file that doesn't have, you know, that, that isn't actually like the document is empty. The big dossier is empty. And so they give these answers to an utterly supine right wing press who just sort of treats it like it's a serious and normal thing. And it's like, it, but at the, all you have to do is scratch the surface at the, mo- in the most basic way to see how completely like not even a bad answer it is. It's like it doesn't even answer a question because they, they just don't even acknowledge the question exists. It's like, I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than it. it Everything about their policy, everything about their approach to politics seems to be placeholder text on a website that hasn't gotten finished. (laughs) Spreadsheet Phil's spreadsheet was corrupted by the fact that he wasn't actually using a computer. He was using one of those like VTech, the cow says moo. (laughs) I've made this joke before, but it's like it's like the the Kelly Rowland video where uh, where she's texting. And if you watch the video, she's not actually texting. She's typing into an Excel spreadsheet. And yet, for some reason, she's expecting a text message in reply. Theresa May has never sent a text. She's only ever typed into an Excel spreadsheet. However, Bow Wow was expecting a text from Kelly Rowland. But what he got was Philip Hammond's plans for the UK economy. (laughs) And Phil's just been winging it with all these messages from Kelly Rowland. And that's why none of it makes any sense. So what Philip Simmons says... I just have information about hoes. I'm sorry. When when confronted by Emily Maitlis, and to Emily Maitlis's credit, she does actually not just accept his answer and move on. Maybe that's because Philip Hammond is being completely outrageous. Well, I mean, if you can skewer an intellect like Dapper Laughs, you can certainly get Philip Hammond. I mean, Dapalovs can use a spreadsheet. Yeah. So, Philip Hammond says, uh, in, react- in response to the assertion that the UN found 14 million people living in dire poverty, he says, look around you. That is not what we see in this country. Look around the studio. Of Do you see any homeless people in this newsroom? Well, we've no, established that there aren't closed. any homeless people in this yeah. room. Okay. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> of On course. a survey of me and you, are you homeless? No, I'm not homeless. <laughs> of course, there are still people struggling with the cost of living. Um, of course, um, this is this is this the cost of living in a house. Yeah. <laughs> it's a struggle. Uh, you know, it's it's we. <laughs> of course, people are struggling with the cost of living. I understand that, but no one's in dire poverty, and I think that's partly because Philip Hammond's way of looking at the world doesn't accept that in a market economy, dire poverty can exist, except if the government is corrupt or. Um, or, or if it's in Africa, so in it's, it's 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 like it's like you can show him scenes of dire poverty in his own home constituency, and his only response is Google Venezuela. Yeah, essentially. You, uh, well, I mean, he does. He is what must be one of the richest constituencies in the whole country. It's Runnymede, isn't it? They represent. So perhaps if he's in Runnymede, perhaps he sort of walks out <laughs> in the streets of streets of paved with gold mm. or whatever it is they do over there, and he doesn't see actually very much uh, homelessness. I, I mean, mean, maybe that's it. Maybe he shuts well, his eyes all industries. the way to central London. The yeah. way to see the way I think the way to see Philip Hammond is that. He, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, he's being an incredible constituency MP for Runnymede. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea effect. of like the dire poverty in Runnymede. Like, well, there's been no industry here, so they've they've not signed a Magna Carta in Runnymede not since not since twelve fifteen. You know, we're <laughs> we're out of work. <laughs> so it's the um like on, and again, we I wouldn't think that. It's too surprising that that this is happening. It's not surprising that the cost of everyone not dying due to climate change has been pegged at the biggest number imaginable based on whatever the Treasury felt like writing. And mean and the UN special rapporteur on dire poverty's warning signs are being ignored because you know, because of ideology. Like we are never gonna expect these people to really be telling the truth. That's fine. But it's just they seem to have stopped trying. Isn't also a trillion pounds basically Apple's valuation? 
Oh, the implication is that Apple could sell them climate change. I mean, change. if they wanted to, like, that's the thing. It's like, it's not even that big of a number. It's not like they're like, it's a hundred trillion pounds. Like, it's, it's an, it's a number it's of, mo- an, it's an amount of money that exists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've probably in the last 20 years stashed more than that in the Cayman Islands. I mean, I not just Britain, but, you know, throughout the developed world. So it's like, well, um, guys, hang on. Let's blue sky this. That's Matt, Matt Hancock for a moment. Okay. okay. We can't afford to stop climate change. Everyone dies. That's bad. On the upside, everyone dies. No homelessness problem. <laughs> that's oh, that's good. That's yeah. how we're solving the dire no, that, poverty. Exactly. That's, yeah, that, that would work in a sense. That's oh, so- you're cold and hungry. <laughs> how about being neither of those things when the earth burns to a crisp? <laughs> so the thing is, in in the background of... The, of this basically breakdown of, of this slow breakdown of society and the fact that the political class is unwilling or unable to do anything about it either because they are nostalgic for the 1990s or because this is actively what they want um, this is James and I have been having this conversation about what how, what, how Corbynism is responding to that and what Corbynism has to do and be. Um, and so we were saying, for example, we know that Corbynism means attempting to reverse uh, the, the drive of people into dire poverty. And we know that it, it means to do that by appropriating and expending um, uh, resources. But there is an actual element of the strategy that I think hasn't quite been worked out yet, right? When we were talking about this, we were talking about it in terms of uh, of of a model uh, of of change and agency and policy outcome. Yeah, no, that that I think is well, that, that is what we were talking about. There's there's another part of it I think which which relates to why is it that the the chancellor exchequer is either denying real numbers or making up uh, fake numbers, uh, and that's like I don't think it, I don't think it's necessarily deliberate. All of this, it's just that they've given up. Like we're in this weird situation, the people in charge are just wandering around, uh, waiting for something to turn up that will rescue them out of this mess, and nothing really will. I mean, maybe they'll 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 come up with Boris Johnson or God knows who else as as leader of the Conservative Party, and maybe that'll sort things out, or maybe you'll just carry on doing this for a while. So, so at least part of the issue, I think, with what Corbynism is as like this is something that needs to be in government and it will make a difference, is it has to supply that sense of purpose. Mm. It has to supply like a whole government here, which is now tootling around in little circles and has been for some time because Brexit has occupied every single waking moment, everything it can plausibly think about and bits of it can kind of keep falling off and like mm-hmm. basic function of the state and the Treasury is pretty much the most basic function of the state. It is the bit that taxes and spends. That's the the spend, you know, that, that's the kind of core part of what a government does is kind of losing the plot in some senses, right? Yeah. So part of it is trying to get that sense of what does it mean to have a government where you actually have a sense of direction, a sense of purpose and all the rest of it. And I think a big part of the reason that we're here is partly it's, bec- it's because Brexit sucked all the oxygen out of the room. But I think the other part is that the, if you like, the, the, this model of, of, of logic, process, and agency that the conservatives were, are, are, were basing their government on, that, to be honest, Blair and Brown based their government on, that was initiated more or less by Thatcher, has nothing left to do. It, it, it has no room left to try and continue doing the thing that it does. And so what we're now going to do is we're going to go through what these models actually are from a in the sense in the sense of how do they conceive of the world capital how do they conceive how are these policies enacted and how are the outcomes delivered it's like there's not much left to privatize 
No, there's there are no, a few but, things. I mean, there's the NHS. Obviously, they really want that. But like, there's just not. The, I mean, the, where's, where's your imagination? There's loads of things you can privatize if you really like put your mind to it. I mean, there's roads, there's schools, <laughs> there's the police. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, you can really like push the the boundaries of this thing. But but for some reason, they they lack that. Uh, What's the word? Imagination or or intent to do this? But I mean, I think more more seriously that that is. You are running onto the basic issue of governance here, which is it's quite hard to get any further with no sense of direction, right? Mm. And, and and if you look at the contenders of the Tory leadership contest, they, they also offer bits of solutions or partial ideas, but because all of them are hung up on various forms of what Brexit is or is not, they can't really provide a, well, they're a particularly complete it. solution to it. Well, they, yeah. Yeah, or, or they don't and they have to pretend to believe in it. I mean, yeah. that's, that seems like you know, Boris Johnson, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. Um, like Matt Hancock for Tory leader, he's got an app. It's going to be fine. Yeah, he's got an app. He seems nice. Exactly. It doesn't seem nice. <laughs> Sorry. I hate to break this to you. It doesn't seem that nice at all. Sorry, the, the, um, he's, a, the, he's a conservative MP. I mean, the, sort of, there's a baseline where you think, okay, Matt, probably not that great. The Matt Hancock that exists in my imagination um, is a Labrador who was turned into a cabinet minister who has just fallen in with a bad crowd. It's a, it's a sequel to Airbud. <laughs> a very dark sequel. There's we have this theory about like Matt Hancock that he's like this this like beautiful special boy who's just who's just been like kind of taken in by the bullies and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't and if we just took him to a safe place <laughs> And gave him love and care. You know, he could just eat waffles all day long and do the things yeah, that he was born to do. Exactly. Do, do things like parkour, things yeah. that he loves. He could he could just enthusiastically experiment with new kinds of adventure sports. Yeah. I think, just, I think he would be very happy doing That's that. That's why he stands out so much from the other Tory leadership candidates, just because he seems capable of experiencing joy. But, like, like again, at, like, a fourth grade level. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's a very Whereas, pure, innocent kind of joy. I mean, you yeah. look at some of the other ones, you think probably they're into a bit of joy as well, but not quite. So oh, yeah. No, no, no. Exactly. Parody. Everyone's going. Everyone's Parody. going in hard for Rory Stewart, but I mean, he has all the personality of a sort of haunted Pinocchio. I don't really understand <laughs> how you can imagine having sex with Rory Stewart. <laughs> him just like oh, limply no. holding his right hand out in front of him, and you're like, Rory, why are you doing that? But, but imagine, you know, taking a little other mix and match from the Tory leadership candidates. Imagine Matt Hancock smoking opium. Oh well, now that would be exciting. That's something I'd do. I what would Matt Hancock's opium dreams be? That's a Groupon I would buy. Smoke opium with Matt <laughs> oh, Hancock. No. That would just... <laughs> <laughs> Groupon, Matt, if you're listening. you're listening, you got an app. You can probably offer it through your app. Matt, Matt Hancock dark web app. <laughs> Very fun. <laughs> Matt, Matt Hancock mp.onion.tor. <laughs> We've talked about this. Like, there's all this noise has been made about the opening for left politics. We know what we want to accomplish with this opening, but there's this question of how, who will deliver Corbynism? And we have this model who enacts it and how does that translate to policy that is to say we have a set of manifesto promises um and and and, but people come out not just for a set of policy outcomes but outcomes for people um you know we elected the government and the government will do it but we i think there is this imagine there is this imagination that jeremy corbyn when he's elected i think because so many people have put so much mental energy into just getting the tories out of government and putting a labor left party into government that I suspect when Jeremy Corbyn can't just push a big red button that says socialism or flip the socialism switch from off to on and suddenly people's lives are better, that's going to be a very difficult like month after he's elected. Um, and so I, I, wanted, I wanted to talk about how this actually works, but I think we need a counterfactual first. And I think we can take Blairism as our counterfactual, because even if it is a fraudulent version of progressive politics, it's the only one most of our listeners have ever actually experienced. So we're looking at their, their mental model of how the world works, their agency model of how 
you then translate that world into the policy outcomes you want and what outcomes you get. So, James, what, what, how can we describe that mental model? Well, I mean, the, the mental model behind Blairism, I suppose, is that it's, it's slightly different to how it actually ended up in office. I mean, the, the mental model is roughly that we have globalization. This means that all the sort of old school social democratic demands, in particular demands of the left, like, you know, let's have nationalization, public ownership, high taxes for the rich, all that sort of stuff has to disappear. Right? We can't do any of these things because globalization uh, is the rather sort of foreshortened version of it. Uh, the other bit is, you know, the working class has disappeared. Everyone's middle class now. The What was it? 60, 40, whatever the... Whatever the numbers are, the division of society, the basic people are okay, and then twenty percent who aren't, you know that kind of thing. Um, so, so that that's 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 the kind of world that they think they inhabit. And there's also that peculiar bit of all the way uh, through the nineties up until getting elected, they, they would talk incessantly about how they're going to be uh, about long term investment. They're going to be about giving people skills. It's going to be a high skill, high wage, high productivity economy. Uh, a whole lot of things that they didn't actually really deliver on. Once they got there, right, uh, in terms of you know, the investment that would deliver the skills that would deliver the high productivity economy and all the rest mm. of it, it just ended up sort of collapsing behind. Uh, here's the city of London. Here's financial services. It's all good, <laughs> you know, uh, for for a really quite long period of time. But but that was how they were thinking about it. That that's what they were trying to say. So so it was a different. It was different to the old sort of old Labour, old social democratic way of approaching the world, where you say uh, the world's like this, and we're going to change it a bit so it's a bit better. This was more like the world's not great, but we can kind of sand things around a bit, and you people can be made so you think the world is better and you're a kind of better person because of it mm. well there is there was this the mental model of of blairism i think is quite um it's sort of it's a bit it's a bit it's a bit um catholic really where there is there is this idea that you are you are born a, 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 a babe you're born with original sin which is not having um employable skills and then <laughs> as a baby and then through the purchase of indulgences and the doing of good works, uh, you can get you, you can upskill yourself. Get a fucking job, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can then upskill yourself and, and 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 attain higher and higher and higher status. And there is and there is this idea that the economy, the, a Blairite vision of the economy is not. And this goes for the Change UK and so and so on and the conservative parties of Philip Hammond as well is basically a moral one where. International capital is is exogenous. You can't control it. But what? But if, lucky for you, international capital is basically an amalgam of Santa Claus and a calculator that figures out how good you are, how how valuable your skills are, how much do you know to code, how new is your coding language, and then just distributes you your just rewards based on how good you are. And the their and and their core assumption to 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 me seems to be. That all as the as the government, our responsibility is to make Britons better. We have to make them all better people, so that capital will then the calculator Santa will come down the chimney and then deliver them a high and rising standard of living without us needing to do anything difficult like tax anyone because we can't do that because that's like trying to shoot down Santa's sleigh and would be considered bad. I think that's exactly it. It's 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 this you get this obsession with skills that everyone's got to learn skills. So you got to go and whatever skills you have now, you can have better skills. Here's skills, skills, skills. That's the kind of positive end of it because it 
possibly means you might learn something. But the negative side of it is is that sort of disciplinarian approach to to how the labour market works, which is actually you need to be a better person. It's kind of your fault you haven't got a job, so we're going to force you to get a job, and you're going to be a better person because of it. You could, mm. And it comes through quite strongly, increasingly strongly, as new labour sits in office as they get tighter and tighter uh, about you know the, the the original sanctions regimes and that, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, which they they introduce and and really tighten up on uh, how hard it is to get unemployment benefits and all mm. the rest of it. And and you end up with with what starts to be a really peculiar labour market because actually what happens is international capital it cares about some skills it doesn't necessarily care about skills just you know wherever they happen to be uh, it does care quite a lot about cheap labour that's great so you can go and employ lots and lots of people in increasing secure contracts and using agency work and all the rest of it uh, and, and they can all have jobs but then what you also find it just doesn't create that many jobs so you look at new labour in office they, 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 they create a huge number of either public sector or Funded by the government jobs, right, right the way across the country, to the point where you know, the northeast it's about half, more than half of employment is basically in the public sector. This is their model not working. Mm-hmm. Now they mm-hmm. share that in common with, frankly, the Major and Thatcher governments as well. Like fairly consistently, British capitalism since the seventies is quite bad. Private sector capitalism, you know what companies and businesses do is quite bad at creating jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the government always has to step in. Thatcher you know, ends up creating around a million sort of public sector jobs or public sector funded jobs during your time in office. Blair does something similar. So th- th- there's kind of an admission or, or, or a, a sort of embarrassed admission that the, the model isn't working. It's not uh, capitalism turning up from the rest of the world and magically sprinkling jobs across the country. <laughs> that doesn't happen. It happens a bit around here, like where we are now in London. It doesn't happen across the rest mm. of the country. Uh, and they, they, they fail to deal properly with the consequences of this. They, they say, we'll tax the city of London a bit more. We'll redistribute a bit more. It was quite redistributive in office, New Labour. It did actually genuinely uh, redistribute quite a lot of money. But that's compensating for the failure of the entire sort of economic model underneath it. Well, I think the, uh, the and we, we talk about the, the mental model and the, under, the underlying mental model is basically this supply side one where we make people better and that all the government can really do is all, all, all the all popular government. So all ultimately the electorate can really do is create the conditions for international capital to come in and bestow love upon you. So that's slashing the minimum slash like lowering minimum wages, introducing flexible wages, all of this stuff. So it's trying to basically lay out the milk and cookies for calculator Santa. Um, and any and the and the idea was that seeing the, that we you, we the consumer is then the protagonist of society. So we ask we we say this this mental model and then the policy deliverer who does blairism the idea was the consumer was going to do it through his or her consumer choices made with his or her um increased income that they got from some kind of shoulder pads job um and the that but that that didn't quite work did it well in the sense that the the consumer sorry the, the consumer is the agent of society that if as long as we do what consumers say everyone's going to be happy that, well, that's that, the sort of belief but here. rather that the gut that the the public sector the command sector if you like yep. the popular sector has to step back because we can because they because it can never know what the people really want yeah, yeah. and so what we have to do then is always make everything private yep. or at least public private or at the very least introduce like artificial internal markets into it so that we will never have to try to plan something which will be failure prone and instead the market which is perfect at telling you what people want because money is a the price signal is a very efficient source of information what people want is a machine that squeezes juice out of a bag <laughs> <laughs> because the pr- the price signal will then fix that for us but that's what i mean that 
that yeah, yeah, causes so, so they introduce yeah. into the, I mean they go mad with this they introduce into the public sector the, the, the idea that if you can't have a market you can't actually just sell the thing off whatever your thing is you know your school or, or a hospital or whatever you can introduce a target uh, and you can expect all the different parts of the system to work towards that target and to do so in a way that, that's kind of morally good and what you want them to do rather than just actually what happens if you set people targets which is they'll find whatever quick route they can to get there which happens in fairly dramatic style under New Labour. Mm, so the f- most famous example, I think we've, we've touched on this before but it was a while ago, is the bed trolleys. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is, um, oh God, the NHS Trust uh, somewhere west of London that, that was given a target for reducing the number of uh, patients uh, left in beds in, in hospital, uh, left on trolleys in hospital corridors. So all they did was remove the uh, wheels from the trolleys and then reclassify them as beds, which meant they were no longer sitting in trolleys in hospital corridors, whilst in fact now sitting in trolleys without wheels in hospital corridors. I love to live in Soviet Britain. I was going to say, because <laughs> I was thinking about, there was this famous anecdote about the Soviet Union in which the the volume of like a, pri- a target for a factory that made lamps was they had to do it by weight and so they just made the bases of the lamps out of lead really fucking heavy lamps mm. and there's like we've, we've, made, we've made target yeah. and it's literally that but in, in a way that's even more insidious because it's in a hospital it's so yeah it's well welcome well, welcome to the britain that exists but in the weird mirror universe of everything like the biggest war hawks of the 1980s thought the Soviet Union was. That's going to be like a weird like Gladwell style free economics thing that like the number of like murders committed by lamp in the Soviet Union massively <laughs> increased after like that particular production target. <laughs> there is, I mean this is why Mark Fisher called it um, market Stalinism for a reason that you do end up with these completely perverse uh, outcomes. I mean that, that is one of the more dramatic ones but you get sort of lesser versions of that that all over the place. The basic problem is that, is that this kind of neoliberal thing of like, if you treat people like rational calculating machines, they'll behave like rational self-interested calculating machines, which is lo and behold, not necessarily always going to be doing the nice thing that you want them to do. Well, in- you set them a target and they think, what's the quickest way to get to the target? Not how do I get to the target in the morally good way I'm supposed to? Well, mm. it's not even an issue of a morally good way. It's that it's that the whole, the mental model and the mental and the logic and agency model of Blairism is such that is basically sums up in the idea that we can never do anything directly. We can never take any action. What we can do is we can set incentives and then allow the process of, we can allow the market to then take the action. We cannot move. And another example of this that actually happened today was that a Cornish fishing village, um, as now has has started a what a campaign that has been referred to as heartwarming, unfortunately, called "Will You Be Our GP?" Because the one GP in the village has has retired, and the village, um, Mavagisi, with a population of two thousand, just does not is not going to be a profitable place for a GP to set up shop. Because GPs, as you might remember from our episode of Tim Faust, charge between seventy five and hundred pounds per patient visit. And if, if you are going and if you are a GP, rather than you, what you're going to do is you're going to move to the place with the most people. But that and the problem is that that kind of policy was designed with the assumption that everyone from Mevagisi, when there just weren't enough people and there wasn't enough economic activity there to warrant a GP, would then dutifully teach themselves to code and then move. And so the so their prosper their prosperity was always in their hands on the basis that they're willing to do anything that calculator Santa wants them to do at any given point for any reason fuck your family fuck your home 
um, fuck everyone you've ever known. All you do is exist to react to capital. And it's th- all just like a monkey's poor wish. Like, oh, you wished for a nice old timey life by the seaside, but the kind of old timey life you're going to get is cholera. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and and so the, the we go back to someone like Philip Hammond, where. He says, well, of course, it's impossible that people are, are living in poverty because we've been so market friendly. The market as clearly is lifting people out of poverty. Sure, people might be struggling because they may still be making themselves better, putting themselves in the right area, uh, learning to code, buying indulgences. But no, they're not damned. As Philip Hammond says, pain is weakness leaving the body. <laughs> Kinda. Um, and so we can, but we can see, right, like. The consequences of of this of this mental model and agency model was a clown society for clowns. None of it has actually worked. But if we understand then Blairism to have the mental model of capital is exogenous, you can't control it, but it's a good thing it's benign. So we are going to create the conditions for it to come in and then allow consumers to be both the beneficiaries and the agents of our of our set of policies. We can then ask the same set of questions for for Corbynism. Well that that's what I think that's where I think there's something quite interesting here which is is that exactly that as the movement has developed I think it's got better at being sort of self-reflexive thinking about what it is that, that we're doing anyway that as you say it can't be it looked a bit like this in 2017 where you'd just be this might be a one shot uh, in the general election so you have to get Jeremy Corbyn elected uh, and sort of in people's heads whether they quite express it like this is that Jeremy Corbyn's prime minister all he has to do is go in number 10 and get the big old lever, which is jammed over to neoliberalism, pull it towards socialism, and then that's that's basically it. And and as you sort of go away from that moment, I think there's there's a deeper understanding that actually this will involve a, a series of potentially quite difficult choices or a series of arguments they haven't previously considered. And I think increasingly you get a, a model of what this might look like, where things like you know the Preston model, where things like what is happening on the ground with Jamie Driscoll getting elected up in up in the northeast as Metro Mayor up there, where you can start to see piece by piece, you can assemble parts of what uh, a different kind of society and certainly a different government operating to different standards might look like. And that, I think, is where the, the movement gets some sort of sense about where it's going. That isn't just, you know, stick Jeremy Corbyn in number 10, pull the lever, it's all good. Uh, that, but that's the lever it does exist, just to be clear on that. It's right next to the stop Brexit button. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Jeremy. The first thing he goes for is the lever and not the button. Well, I was thinking about this, Riley, because um, the, the American historian, uh, political scientist, Corey Robin, talked about this, uh, that if you looked at the sort of sea change that took place in American politics and in British politics but in the late 70s and early 80s, um, if you looked at the congressional elections, the midterm elections in 1978, you wouldn't necessarily have predicted that Jimmy Carter was going to lose and that Reaganism was going to be this massive defining force that it was, uh, that you know, it completely changed America for the worse. But if you were paying attention to some of the actions on the ground, you could see things like the taxpayers' revolt basically in California, the protest that led to the passage of a law that basically makes it illegal for California to raise tax, it's almost impossible to raise taxes and basically allows people to never have their homes be valued more than what they were valued in the 70s and avoid paying all property tax. And I think if you look similarly to like, uh, James, you're talking about the Preston model, but also just the sheer amount of insourcing that is yep. starting to happen in this country, you can see a, a shift. And even though people haven't either been celebrating in the streets because Corbyn is prime minister or conversely, losing their minds 24-7, like you know they will on the right when Jeremy Corbyn, or hopefully Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister. I do think like the ground is shifting yep. and you are seeing some things. And if you're looking for those details, 
uh, you're seeing that it's not it's not just one off. It's actually taking place because it's almost like whatever whatever this cycle, whatever you define this cycle for neoliberalism, something is ending. Mm. You just can't put your finger on what the the the, the boundaries of it are going to be. Well, and I think as you know, I mean the uh, we 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 always talk of that old 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 socialist phrase the the um the 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 old cannot die and the new is struggling to be born. Um, we as as we seem to be in a position to make this new thing that we want and to begin removing it from necessarily being identical with a person and start making it more of a a movement. Um, I think we we need to begin defining these things about what is our logic model, what is our model of agency, um, who who are the beneficiaries, how do we turn the beneficiaries into the agents? You know, I mean, with because with with Blair. He crucially fucked up, and he assumed that that the um, that capital that capital would act a certain way, and that the consumers who were the agents of Corbynism would of, of Blairism rather would become its would also be its beneficiaries. But it just didn't work like that because because capital ended up being the agent of Blairism. So we have to ask, how does our movement then, especially as it is begins as it is tested by hurdles after it is in government, how does how does it avoid falling into the same traps? How do we make sure we're not we don't have these bizarre unstated assumptions like the calculator Santa one? Yeah, so I mean to, what you're basically asking is and I don't I don't have by any means have the answer, but you're asking Blairism maybe even more weirdly fundamentally convinced in, in the sort of inherently natural properties of capitalism than than even Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Uh made the mistake of assuming that uh, too much or or assuming that things were unchangeable with regard to the the market and thus just allowing it the free run of of Mm -hmm. the country are we potentially doing like looking at the uh, looking at it that we can just somehow snap our fingers and make it go away or make it do what we want that that, that's quite i mean this is the the big difference between thatcher there's many big differences between thatcher and blair but one of them is is that thatcher had to fight for something thatcher had to fight to make society and the economy look different and that was actually quite that was quite a hard process for them to go through and it wasn't one they were necessarily going to win Blair sort of doesn't have to do that it's it's accepting that fight has already been won and won in a certain way and then trying to deal with the consequences so so automatically your version not just agency but what you think this government is going to look like and how it's going to operate looks different although if you say that I mean if you look at the, the rhetoric of Blair uh, in particular, and somewhat Gordon Brown, but certainly as the two most senior people in all of this, uh, the re- Blair's rhetoric throughout his time in office is always about some struggle or other. Where he's, what was he, 2000, 2001, where he's, he's, he's talking about the forces of conservatism that he has to take on uh, in his conference speech. There's always no, he some means take of, on board. <laughs> well, very good. But no, I mean, this is what he labelled. The forces of conservatism was both, you know, the, the Conservative Party and trade unions trapped in their old ways of working and the old left and whatever they were doing. These were the forces of conservatism that were holding Britain back. They had to sort of generate things to attack, largely because they weren't actually doing very much of this. They were accepting the, the neoliberal settlement. They weren't trying to advance it very much further uh, from where it had gone, or at least not in the same kind of confrontational way that, that Thatcher did. There were other privatisations. There was a sort of, like we said, the, the target regime introduced in the public sector, but it was a consolidation rather than a, an expansion. Indeed. And so what we're looking at then is my, in almost again, like like Thatcher, a big a big bang transformation. Yeah. Um, so then let's let's do let's kind of do the same thing we did for Blairism. What do we? What is in in sum the core logic model of Corbynism? I mean, the core of it, I suppose, is is the traditional. There's a traditional sort of 
British socialist way of thinking about things, which is is that if you get a majority elected in Parliament, because we have a, a hilariously, as we're all discovering, unwritten constitution, that majority in Parliament will uh, be able to carry through the authority to do actually quite radical and dramatically radical, if necessary, things. So you see this in 1945, this is why people refer back to it. Clear majority appears as if out of nowhere, first one that Labour ever won, it was a thumping majority. Uh, they can do a whole load of really quite radical things, set up the NHS, nationalise however much of the economy it was, all that kind of thing. So, so there's a model there where you say, okay, that's what you have to do. You get a majority in parliament. This gives you the authority, the uh, ability to use machinery state to do to do all of that. Uh, the question you then go back from that point is, how do you get to that majority? And everybody goes round and round and round. How do you form that majority? What what do you do at that point? Uh, what is the coalition that gets you there? Because under our electoral system, you need about you know for a clear majority, forty percent or upwards to to get that kind of majority working in parliament. If you get less than that, you, you're likely to end up in all sorts of messy situations. So then the question is, what does your coalition look like? What is the coalition of support that you can put together that will deliver that 40% or more of the vote, which gives you the popular authority and everything else to, to carry out this programme? That's where it becomes difficult. That's where I think there's a, there's a genuine difficulty about what Labour should be saying and looking to. We know we can do well. We got, what, 40%, just under 40% in uh, 2017 on the basis of a very robust, but uh, very, what would be the word, uh, very standard social democratic manifesto, right? It was, we will spend more money on public services. We will tax rich people and big corporations to pay for it. And some stuff that's never been privatised will be moved back into, into the public sector. So that's quite a standard. Like If you stand in the rest of Europe and look at that, you think there is nothing in here that is considered unusual in Northern Europe. You go to Scandinavia, it's like, so what? I mean, this is just like how things are. The, the screaming hysteria that it was greeted with just shows you how weirdly far particularly the kind of media chat around this has gotten because that was just standard manifesto. The challenge we have is, will that coalition, can we get that coalition again for the next election? Which could be, and frankly, it probably will be as late as 2022. And will the sets of problems we face in 2022 that are expected to address, can they be met by a kind of social democratic offer? Uh, and certainly on the latter one, probably not. We are going to have to say and talk about other things. Climate change being the most obvious one, uh, the digital economy, the impact of data, that sort of thing being the other. But what does the coalition look like? I think is a, is a really sort of vexed question at this point in time. If we look at the last time, um, if we, the, that 1945 government specifically, uh, if we look at that and, and we give our, we get, again, give ourselves that counterfactual, um, we remember we, at the time we had the total war uh, societal infrastructure to hand, right? So if we are, we're not looking, we may not be looking to rebuild a society that's been actively bombed by Germans. Um, but it has certainly been, you know, screwed with by several companies that are German owned. Um, but the question is, how do we solve? How do how do we solve this uh, with what we have? And electoral coalitions aside, if we say the core the core logic model of movement Corbynism, rather than necessarily the platform that might have been uh, advanced in 2017, the core logic model, as far as as far as uh, as far as we've discussed it, it's basically that international capital is controllable, uh, but it's not benign. Or at least it is, it is, it is a force that is not exogenous. It is within the realm of things you can do things about, especially national capital. It's Billy Bob Thornton's bad Santa. Yes, indeed, it is. Yeah, fair, uh, fair enough. Actually, that's probably about true. It is bad Santa. Uh, it 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 gives you things, but it it screws with you, uh, and mostly steal and mostly robs you. I think that was the premise of Bad Santa. Um, was probably something an episode title around that. So. Um, if the, the core logic model then is, is what it's a kind of, it, it, it is 
that internet that, that international capital can and should be controlled that it it and that 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 labor are labor i don't mean labor is in the party i mean labor is in the class is then the the beneficiary and the agent of corbinism but it's not the initial agent the initial agent seems to be active seems to be a, an activist group Okay, I think that, that that's part of it. I think the the issue about what what does international capital do is 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 a is an important part of what's going on. I mean, one of the reasons for hope is is the world has changed since two thousand eight. Fairly obviously, that that what we thought or could have thought was this unstoppable force of globalization has grown to a halt and basically gone in reverse. You know, financial flows, international movement of capital across borders, is down sixty five percent globally since two thousand eight. It's shrunk. You know, the amount of trade as a share of GDP is is, is fallen. This globalization, this big unstoppable thing that the Blairites assumed was there, has in fact stopped, and in a certain sense has gone into reverse. That Jay Shaw more- was huge. Where is he now? Exactly. Sure, down was a banger, but come on. Exactly. The, the, the world is world has shifted in really quite important ways, and, and and this is one of them. But what it means is there's a bit more space, in fact, a lot more space for for governments to do things differently. Right? You don't have to just do neoliberalism. That's one part of it. But if you're talking about the core uh, domestic thing, I suppose the the issue here is having to do something that both Thatcher and the Attlee governments did, which is a, a shift in ownership. So we changed the model of how uh, stuff is owned in our society. In 1945, there's a shift in the model of ownership because things are nationalised. Uh, not everything, right? It's twenty percent of the economy. I think is 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 what it gets to its peak. But that is a shift in the ownership. Nineteen seventy nine is a shift in ownership towards we're going to privatize everything. It, we call it popular capitalism in practice. Just this huge transfer of wealth uh, to the top, sort of one percent, not point one percent. We have to break that open and create new ways of owning things. So some of that is going to be the big push on worker ownership and employee ownership. Some of that I think has to be particularly around renewable energy production. It's going to have to be uh, community ownership. Some of it's going to be slightly stranger, or at least things that people haven't got used to yet, which is questions around the ownership of data, both creating platform cooperatives, but also how do you personally own and control the data that you're generating? So that's the big shift in ownership. What is the new sort of commons that we're going to create? And that, that's kind of, that, that's something we have a space to do because I think globalization is not the force it once was, but it's also something we have to do because otherwise the logic of capitalism, certainly in Britain now is, is deeply extractive. It's deeply, it's not really, you know, productivity's sunk to productivity growth has sunk to sort of zero thereabouts wages are falling this is a deeply extractive rent-seeking destructive model of capitalism we're now up against you have to do something else but it also seems to me james just to jump in on that 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 would also make a a shift in ownership or a shift in approach easier to to sell or easier to 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 um find consensus with amongst people who would be involved in supporting this because it's not working for people Exactly. And I think that's it. I think you can see it uh, dramatically around the question of housing, particularly in London. Uh, the, the land report that, that Labour produced, George Monbiot and, and his team uh, this week is actually a really good list, really good analysis of how uh, wealth has become so concentrated in not just property, but land, really, and how this is uh, absolutely sort of mashing up the economy for, for large numbers of, of other people. Anybody trying to get a house, first, anyone wanting to be a first time buyer in London, it's, you know, it's, it's an extraordinarily difficult prospect by this time. So, so you can see how changes in the form of ownership could suddenly be very appealing. You, you can do that with, with the worker ownership stuff. It can either sound quite esoteric. You can own your 
uh, you can own your company that you're working for, or you can make it quite appealing. Wages have fallen for 10 years, but if you have a share collectively in this company, you get the dividends, you get a chunk of the profits. That's something for your wages. That's straight in your in your pocket. So mm. the inclusive ownership fund proposal, I think, can be an important part of winning popular support for that shift in ownership. So in that case, then, we can see the the agents of, of Corbynism less are... Um, you could say you'd say the the activist vanguard who are who are expounding upon these ideas of of inclusive ownership, and more the agents of Corbynism are the the people who, the owners of things, but the non capital owners of things, the labor owners of things, and the idea the whole concept of Corbynism and its main challenge is as Corbyn gets into government is to enact the policies that will turn beneficiaries of Corbynism into agents of Corbynism because the forces of reaction will waste precisely no time in portraying, for example, uh, Jeremy Corbyn enacting capital controls, which, by the way, is very easy. You push a button. It's, it's essentially a button push. Is that between the stop Brexit button and the socialism lever? <laughs> I'm just trying to keep track of what kind of... Um, they, and Milo, don't worry, they're not labelled. What kind of command centre we're dealing with here? <laughs> 10 Downing Street has just three things in it. There's a it's golden c- lift down to yeah. it, right? And there's, got, sort of, there's a lever, there's a stop Brexit button, and then there's the magic capital control yeah, button. And then well. there's the racism button. Yeah. But actually, the word racism is entirely worn off of it through heavy <laughs> so many times. No, no, it's the, it's the it's there's the capital control kazoo and you play the little sound and then ev- no one can take money out. It's like a big Swiss horn. <laughs> also related to the racism button somehow. Yeah. So Corbynism does not fail from having these unstated assumptions about international capital basically being nice. It says no, there are material interests and we represent the material interests of this group and we are going to try to control and move against the material interests of these other groups. It doesn't have that kind of willful blindness. But at it's the same time. They're living in a material world. But at the same time, it also has to. Ex- also, we also have to prepare ourselves for the fact that as we get into government and as we create, as we ter- translate this model into policy through our through the agents of who enacts Corbynism, we will face resistance, and there will be an t- amount of time where the forces of reaction will be completely arrayed against us. For example, as we talked about portraying um, the imposition of capital controls, which might or might not be necessary as a profound economic failure, even though we might say that it that would be a success. Uh, well, I'd say it would be a failure uh, if you end up having to do capital controls. I mean, you, you are right. It's easy to do this. Uh, sort of debts of the 2008 crisis, the, the Brown government at the time, uh, passed, what was it called? The Landsbanky Freezing Order. Uh, under anti-terrorist legislation, they froze every single Icelandic uh, bank account in the country. So if you're from Iceland, you suddenly find you can't get your money out of an ATM, that sort of thing, because they place basically the entire country uh, on a terrorist watch list. So if you want to do a capital control... <laughs> fucking can, Icelandic terrorists. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's... It, was it was quite a diplomatic incident, but that's the you know force feeding you raw fish in a sauna or something. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I say diplomatic incident; it's just bullying, really. It's, it's a country of three hundred thousand people, so you can, you can do this. But I mean, at least at least in theory, capital Nerds. controls are very easy to implement. But it's it's a failure if you do it. And I think there's this sort of 
assumption that you do this because it's kind of thing you want to do anyway. And if, if you if you do this, then it, it, it's it's not what you want to do. What you actually want to do is rebuild the economy and do lots of other things over here. What you don't want to do is start having to impose these big clunky instruments on how capital is mm. being moved, right? But, so mm. so no, I don't view it as as like this would be a success, and I don't view it as like this is something that we want to set out to do. We have to have a different model of this. This is my point about not getting back into like wouldn't it be great if the seventies were here again, uh, right? If our model, you know, Blair has a mistake. International capital's nice. We could have a mistake. Weren't the seventies great? And wouldn't but it be James, great to you could drink them? beer out of a paint tin. <laughs> There were gollywogs on the jam. It was a great uh, it's, time. It's, you know, I'm glad that you see, there you go, the dark side of the 70s, which sometimes in this kind of misty nostalgia you, you run into on the, on the left sort of gets forgotten about. There was lots of things that were absolutely terrible. Not usually the stuff the right goes on about being terrible, <laughs> by the way, but there was a load of things that were terrible. But aside from that, we can't go back to it, right? So our model can't be, here is a big clunky thing to stop how international capital moves. So our mm. model has to be a lot more sophisticated. Without, without our, be- our model is we might have to do unpopular things, but when the Argentines invade the Falklands again, Jeremy Corbyn will see a rise in popularity. Yeah. Just how it works. This, this we is need the natural cycle. To come or, to or, or we just rerun the 80s, but from the slightly yeah. weird point of view of Jeremy Corbyn being Margaret Thatcher, which is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that is a Freaky Friday film I would watch. <laughs> <laughs> when Jeremy Corbyn becomes a corpse. Um, yeah, I mean, well, the political landscape has un- the political landscape has undeniably shifted since the seventies because in the seventies, coal mining was the left wing thing, and now coal mining is actually the right wing thing. <laughs> it's flipped. But there's always one party that wants to bring back coal mining. That's the that's the only hard and fast rule of politics, as far as I can tell. It's less a progression and more just possession in a ball game. No, it's, it's like, like now it's they've like, got coal, all right? They it's just like, have it. um, it's like it's like the it's like the game of go where you're flipping uh, flipping the tiles and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, so my then my question to you is, if we are going if we are going to abandon the idea that 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 capital is basically benign and that it will basically do what we ask it and accept the premise that we have to tell capital what to do, how do we do that? without resorting to the instruments of the 70s. I think the issue here is is, is something like uh, being, look, you, you say, here's capital, and you think, okay, everybody lines up and calls themselves capital, and it's not really how it works. It's like different companies have different interests. I mean, take take finance. Is the really, here we are almost next door to the city of London. Uh, finance is not just one big lump of everybody on the same side, and they all want the same things. right? A hedge fund is not the same as a pension fund. They want quite radically different things. A hedge fund is basically there to gamble and speculate. It has no other purpose. Uh, a pension fund is there to produce long-term uh, returns for, for the people who have pensions, right? So they want very different things. Mm. If we have an understanding that the interests diverge, and it may actually directly clash at some points, then you can start to think about what you would do as a policy. Because if you want to say, okay, we have a huge program to decarbonize the economy, uh, that's going to involve a massive investment in smart grids, in new electricity infra- infrastructure, in renewable energy production, in tidal uh, lagoons, all sorts of stuff. Really, really massive amounts of money that will produce a very long-term return. That's something that pension fund might be interested in. Hedge fund really couldn't care less, but pension fund might be. Mm. So, so how you do this is is that you adopt a, a kind of strategic view of where you want to get to, and you work out what deal, what kind of arrangement you can you can you can come to with the bits of capital that we interest in working like that. That that is really the only way through this. New Labour did have a version of this deal. It was basically to go, hey, finance, do whatever you like. Uh, we'll just kind of scrape a little bit of tax off the top, and that'll pay for like the NHS and stuff. And that kind of worked for with. All the problems we talked about kind of worked for about a decade, right? What, 97 to 2007, yeah? 
did that happen for as long as the credit bubble was going as growing the city could carry on producing more and more debt you scrape a bit of taxes off the top it all looks pretty good until it crashes so we can't do that and we're not we're certainly not going to try and reproduce anything along those lines but if we have a slightly more sophisticated version of that arrangement where you say actually these things we don't like don't really like hedge funds don't really like speculation don't like tax avoidance so we are going to do something about tax havens and offshore trusts and all the rest of it but we are quite interested in uh, long-term investment, we do actually want to see this happening, then you can come to a more sophisticated, really, arrangement, I think, and one that can work. And one that can work in conditions where, as I said, the global setting is that the international capital and globalization and these things that are big, supposed to be big, inevitable forces bearing down on us, just aren't as big as, and as inevitable as they used to be. The global economy looks more broken up. I mean, visibly, you can see it. This is what the China versus US trade war is about. This is the thing breaking up. That creates space. It also seems, James, like what you're saying is to avoid looking at it as though finance and capital are homogenous or unanimous, because that's the tendency yeah. for people to see like they see it as the force of reaction. And as such, they think that they're gonna, everything they do is going to be instantly unanimous, where, whereas it's a lot of discordant voices seeking, A, the easiest way to, in, to, to, to profit or investment, yeah. and B, uh, how to gain advantage on their competitor. Exactly. Uh, that, that's exactly it. it. It's a band of warring brothers, to, to quote Marx. I mean, that's is absolutely, this, you know, they're all part of the same family, but they don't get on particularly well, right? And, and I think if you have that attitude, then then you can start to see what, what you might do. Because you wouldn't make a di- difference, right? It's, it's obvious. It's, it's all built in. Like if you're talking about the mental model of Corbynism, it is, it is just true that we have some bits of businesses that we think aren't too bad and some bits of businesses we think are really bad, right? And you, you can draw up very easily what they are. We don't, we're not very keen on hedge funds and speculation. Uh, we don't mind businesses. Don't mind, don't mind businesses that pay a good wage and have unionisation. It's, it's kind of that clear in in some ways. But in the sense that our our economy has been so geared towards non unionisation, um, you might say um, private equity styles of ownership, um, extreme leverage, and so on and so on. The I think the question remains: How do you? Pr- how do what? When Corbyn is elected, I'm I'm going with when. Um, Corbyn or Corbyn 2, whoever Corbyn 2 is. Um, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> um, then we still, we will still face, we will, st- we will face a such a large re-gearing of the economy uh, away from that, um, that, that there is, there is certain to be a sort of quite large disruption and that the, that the, and then that, the, and that, it is going to present immediate problems, and I wonder if we have worked out how we solve those problems yet that come from that disruption, from us re-gearing towards a more inclusive, fair economy in which the benefits of society are shared by all. And also the hysteria that ine- inevitably is going to surround it. Oh, yeah. He can't even take a shit without someone calling it like sinister. I mean, oh, no. He's accidentally lent on the racism button. <laughs> <laughs> The, 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 I mean, that's there. That's priced in, right? Uh, by this point, it's it sort of they'll jump and shout, and that that will happen. Uh, what, whatever. In, it, it, like, it's already happening now. It'll happen during the election campaign. It'll happen if if Jeremy Corbyn uh, gets elected. When I should say, I think we should be uh, more optimistic about these things. So that's that. That's there. The the issues I think in terms of actually like how do you carry out your program the the biggie for me isn't like there's no sinister plot here but if you're dealing with a civil service that spent forty years basically being neoliberal right that is the entire careers of people 
uh, who've spent all their time just doing neoliberal things. And that's how they think. And that's how everything is geared up to work. And then you turn around and say to everyone, hey, we're going to do this thing where you don't work on a kind of neoliberal uh, neoliberal. You're not doing a basis. skills program. You're not doing a skills program. You're not program. funding. That's every, whatever the, 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 the sort of continuity Blairism yeah. uh, gets onto Twitter, they always like to remind you that, oh, Blair spent these unprecedented amounts of money on sort of various kinds of public services, when in fact what it seems as though he was doing was he was funding the middle managers who were doing a lot of the checking and, and oversight, observation, targeting the HR directors who were making sure that everyone had the right skill brands and so on and so on. So it's, 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 it's you're trying to get rid of that. Uh, yeah, you, you're, you're certainly not. Uh, you, you don't want the model of, of this sort of new public management they call it, where you know everything's a target, everything's like you you intensely monitor what people are doing in the public sector because you assume that they can't perform their job properly unless they're given targets and clear responsibilities and that sort of thing. You want to get back to a kind of public service model where people are doing their jobs because they want to do their jobs, right? Which is sort of ideal for these things. I mean, most people actually end up teaching or in hospitals or wherever uh, are doing it because they want to do it because they like the job. They think it's good to do something that's useful to people. Pod Podcasting. Get that. Podcasting. Yeah. Podcasting is up there in the, the list of, of socially useful things that we all do. Because, <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. it's, Where it's, would you be without the village podcaster? <laughs> yeah. When the village podcaster in Cornwall retires, then they're really fucked. <laughs> So, so you get back to that public service podcasting uh, uh, model that, that you know, that's how you th that's how the public sector ought to be working. That's what you want to try and introduce. And that's quite a slow process. But if you're talking about right in the middle of it, if you're talking about the senior civil servants, the sort of bits of the state that are supposed to be there setting the direction, it is just going to be hard. It's like you know, the, the literal treasury rule book, uh, the green book is written basically in a neoliberal way. There's some bits and bobs where you say, oh, you can sort of take account of society and the environment if you, if you have to uh, <laughs> when you're making decisions. But the way that is laid out is geared towards saying, right, if you're doing something, it's a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, what is the what is the market return you're going to get from this, right? If that's, if that's your operating system for the mm. Treasury, uh, you need to rewrite this and you need to kind of get people to behave differently. And that is going to be a challenge all by itself. That's even before we get into like, oh, there's going to be some big old plot or whatever. That, it's for the birds, really. This is what the problem is going to be. Uh, and it's a problem of implementation. It's a problem of things not working as they should work. It's a problem of having to explain to people why things aren't working as they should work, because you're trying to make a big shift. In terms of a big shift in the economy, the other one to bear in mind is, is that, look, when you say you've got 10 years, because the IPCC says we've got basically 10 years to sort out climate change, right? Capitalism will adapt to that. It already is. Uh, and it's already kind of working out ways that it's going to have to think about what that means for itself. The Bank of England right now has a, a big program where it's trying to encourage banks and other financial institutions to, to think about what they have in terms of stranded assets, things that they can't use once you have global warming and you can't just burn all the coal you ever want to, right? Because that mm. actually has a financial consequence. You own a coal company if you're a bank, a coal mining company, and suddenly it's not worth anything, right? That's a problem. So they're already trying to manage this. Uh, and part of what I think we're going to be doing for the next 10 years, and let's hope we can sort of turn this around one way or the other, is dealing with ways in which you're managing that crisis, dealing with alternative ways to manage, manage that crisis. There's a political expression to this. There's a fascinating article in, in, in Dissent uh, by Kate Aronoff on the rise of sort of eco-nationalism. Mm. Yeah, the, the, there's a right that says actually after years of denying climate change can even happen uh, are now happily adopting it. The, the What's the Front National calling itself in France now? Uh, no, no idea, I'm afraid. Rally, Whichever, whoever they are. 
I can't remember it. Anyway, they, they did a whole rebranding exercise, basically the same thing. But the provisional they, they, Front National. <laughs> let's take a leaf out of Change UK's uh, wealth and book. The Independent okay. Front National. <laughs> but they are quite heavily into saying, actually, you know, the, the borders are our biggest defence against uh, climate change, mm. right? So you can see a very aggressive right-wing Le- reaction. Le- the big wall, the hot air, it cannot come into France. This <laughs> is uh, the new technique. Uh, so it's so it's it's that the question then becomes it's it's adaptation to climate change is going to happen and the question then is how do we how do we how do we adapt in a way that it doesn't involve shooting all the billionaires to live in in paradise space stations um and instead well, I thought you were just going to say just shooting all the billionaires <laughs> uh well I think that's the that's the one we've got right now which is the billionaires go live in paradise space stations we have a mad max disaster uh, Mad Max slash Metal Gear. Well, so we have a Mad Max disaster, but they have a total recall disaster when they discover <laughs> that they're living in like a Mars base that was designed by Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> and so it has all kinds of like quirky, nerdy Easter eggs. Like, you know, it plays like, you know, the, the Star Trek th- noise when you open the door or whatever. But like, actually, there's no oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> Can you mark that? Video preview. Okay. Um. But I th- so really what we what we have to confront, I think, as a movement generally, is that we have these interli- we have we have a co- we un- we have a coherent proposition. We understand what it is that we're trying to do. We see the world in a way that I think is more realistic than Blairism um, and, and Blairism referring to all the things surrounding Blairism, the neoliberal model. It's more realistic. Um, and we understand exactly who's going to benefit and why. But I think that in, in asking those questions, in looking at how this works step by step, we, it, we highlight that we do have these problems and that we have a very limited time to solve them. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah, no, no, no. We do have a very limited time to solve them and most of the solutions you're going to get if you just let capitalism run its course are, are going to be fairly fairly ugly. But there are other sort of ugly solutions to it that, that involve a great deal of authoritarianism, right, for example, <laughs> which is also unpleasant. So if you want the solutions that are kind of fair to everyone and therefore viable, because I, I strongly suspect we're not going to be able to, we're not going to be in a position and we wouldn't want to be in a position to just impose like pro-environmental uh, solutions on people, look at Gilets jaunes. Right. This was a protest about, about a rise in fuel taxes. Apparently, under the guise of this is how we're going to like solve climate change, we're going to make people pay more for their petrol. And lo and behold, people were pissed off about that because after years of falling wages and all the rest of it, uh, and the woeful state of public transport away from you know, TGVs or whatever in mm. France, they weren't, they weren't going to put up with it. So if you want something that works, it has to be with a high degree, high degree of consent. And that's where we're back into, like, well, what does this movement look like? Because how do you win consent? Like part of that is going to have to be something on the ground that you're already doing to win and that winning consent. consent, not just in the moment of election, but continuing to win consent to the public every yes. day. I think by looking at these at the at, at our model step by step, and by looking at it also in the comparison to the Blair whatever neoliberal model, like we, I think we raise these important questions, uh, questions like how do we win the consent of people, not just on election day, but daily throughout government. Um, how do we how do we keep them bought into this program when we're not going to be able to deliver all of it right away and on this and when we are not and when international capital is going to be even though it is less mobile than before still throwing up ro- every roadblock it possibly can to something that will threaten its profits and what do we as a movement need to do to get beyond these problems 
I quite frankly don't know. Um, I don't, I don't know necessarily what we have to do, what we should be doing. I know that it's worth doing because otherwise it seems like we all die and I don't want to do that necessarily. Um, <laughs> Keeping it open. I don't want to, I don't want to put off the death lobby. Look, no. you guys are important too. What I'm saying is I don't, I don't know the answers to these questions. And I think if we want to take our movement seriously, they're questions that I think a lot of us just answer by saying, we'll do capital controls. We'll pull the lever. And I don't think that's it. I don't think that's enough. We have to have a better, more developed answer to these questions. So, and it's a question worth answering. Um, we just don't have it yet. So if any of our listeners out there in podcast land have thought of an answer, please write an article about it for gettingyourdicksuck.com and we will try to shift the Overton window with our, <laughs> with, with our fantastic publication. Everyone likes getting their dick sucked. Look, Riley, one day we may own the means of production, but until then, we can only own the libs. <laughs> James. Thank you very much again for coming on. It's always a pleasure to thank have you. you in the basement. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, that was a, an interesting and wide-ranging chat, I think is probably the fairest way to describe that. <laughs> an interesting and wide-ranging chat. Raves, James Medway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, the usual litany of stuff. Uh, number one, it's my birthday week, so I'm the birthday bitch. Uh, number two, when this comes out, it will be my birthday week. And I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a very sassy birthday bitch. So everybody, send me uh, all of your good wishes, but don't send them to me directly. Please mail them uh, to me in a postcard to this studio, which you don't know the address for. You'll figure it out. Uh, secondly, we have a live show on the fifteenth of June. Fifteenth of June, eight p.m. Wolfson College in Cambridge. Do come out to that. We'll be we'll be having we'll be having some so, some chuckles. Uh, some good times and I don't know if we're driving yeah. or taking a train but maybe some beers and that should be very fun please buy a dang ticket also really importantly the week that this comes out on the 13th which is a Thursday myself and Ben Pope are doing previews of our Edinburgh shows at the Secford which is where my comedy night normally runs and it's completely free please come because I organised this short notice because like I need to do some things to my show but it's slightly too short notice to promote it properly so come down and see your boy it won't cost you anything Ben Pope also very good at comedy if you're not familiar ben with Pope, him very funny that will be funny a fun man. experience very funny man successful very funny Fantastic. very Tremendous. very well attended christmas parties ben pope throws Fantastic party. <laughs> Sorry, Trump. Donald Donald Trump meeting Ben Pope and just thinking he's the Pope. He's like, ah, oh, terrible. Didn't wear the hat. Very disrespectful. Record deepness. Um, and finally, uh, you can you can also get a second episode on Patreon uh, if you want to do so. Uh, I recommend it. They're pretty fun. Five bucks a month. You know the deal. Uh, James, do you have anything to plug yet, or are you still working on your book? I'm still theoretically working on my book. It was due in last week, uh, so you know we're, we're way beyond the point at which it should be written. I'm, I'm also in Cambridge, actually, next week, on, on the 13th, uh, doing a meeting for the Cambridge Labour Club on what is Corbynism, uh, or something along... I really ought to check the title before turning up, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, just, just let's have them listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounded good. So, so yeah... <laughs> You can come to that if you're in Cambridge. Yeah, absolutely. So, Cambridge people, lots of calls to action for you on this pod. Anyway, um, we'll talk to you later. Bye.